As we get started this morning, I want to uh, just share some things that have been in my heart this week. Um, we may run long this morning, and I'm going to try not to turn this into a sermon in and of itself, but I want you to listen to me because I think it's important. Many of you probably uh, are aware and are looking around the world to realize that at least it's possible that we're living in the end times, events that are preceding the return of Christ. Um, if you think about what's happening in the epicenter of the world in the Middle, of East, Middle East, you see uh, most of the world focused on Israel and, and Gaza and the war that exists there uh, between uh, Israel and, and, and Hamas, who consistently, again this morning, broke another treaty for peace by sending more rockets over to Israel, probably close to 4,000 now. And um, yet the world, in large part, stands in condemnation of Israel in defense of themselves and the casualties that they have caused in doing so, uh, not putting regard to the fact that uh, Hamas very often uses humans as shields, children's and family, where they shoot the rockets and store their weapons. Um, kind of underneath the radar, you see things going on in Ukraine and what's happening with Russia. What's interesting about that is the fact that even though we've produced many sanctions towards Russia, they just signed a very historic... $20 billion alliance with Iran to help fund them financially because of the sanctions from the West. There's significance to that, biblically. You see, under the radar, and probably the greatest atrocity of all, is what's happening in Assyria, excuse me, Syria, where there are close to 200,000 people who have already died. And then alongside them, and really probably in partnership, is ISIS that Islamic terrorist group that continues to sweep through Iraq. And what you and I need to be aware of is that there are thousands of Christians who are being crucified, children being beheaded, people being killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They're very clearly being told, you either deny him or we kill you. That's the reality of the world that we live in. And what I want... Uh, to assure you of is that God's promises are true. And even though we see these things happening in our world, it's not spinning out of control. But in fact, maybe leading up to the time where everything is made right, when our Savior returns to bring us home. And so as you listen to the Word this morning, I want you to listen with a different set of eyes, a different set of ears, maybe even a little bit disturbed with the reality of what's happening in the world around us. And so maybe this wouldn't become just another Bible lesson. But maybe it really is the word of life. Maybe it is the, really the word of hope, something that we would cling to as if our life depended upon it. That's the way it should work all the time. But sometimes we need things around us to remind us of how significant this is and what a privilege it is for us to be here this morning in freedom and in relative safety. Well, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are literally dying as we speak because of their faith in Jesus Christ. So let's pray for them this morning before we spend our time in the Word together. Father, we think about what's happening uh, in the Middle East, and we don't want to turn a blind eye to the reality of things that have biblical significance, things that relate to the promise of your return. And we don't know when that's going to happen. We're not predicting days, months, or years. But we want to be ready. We want our hearts to be set on you. 
we want to pray for those who are in the midst of persecution, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who because of their faith in you are being killed and tortured and persecuted. We pray for their strength of faith, their witness of the gospel, the message of hope in Jesus Christ amidst such terrible persecution. May that speak of the wonder of what you've done on our behalf as they stand for your name in that place. May it wake us up. May it allow us an opportunity to maybe see things with a different set of eyes, to hear things with a different set of ears, so that we are prepared, that our faith is strengthened, and we are encouraged to walk faithfully in a time of peace, so that when the day comes when we are in the midst of persecution, we are equally as strong. So guide our time this morning as we look at your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. If you will, turn to Proverbs chapter 6. I want us to pick up where we left off last and remind you that our study of Proverbs has afforded us a unique opportunity to sit in on the loving conversation between a a father and his son. And although I don't know this for sure, I suspect that this son is somewhere in his teenage years, his young adult life, as he is preparing to, to be independent, to make decisions on his own. It's a unique season where he's increasingly responsible to make decisions for himself, to develop his own personal convictions about life and, and faith. And so his father wants to guide him. He wants to lead him to know how to make wise decisions. And right off the bat, he tells his son, wisdom begins in your relationship with the Lord. He says, in fact, if you're not following God, there's no possible way for you to find wisdom. Because wisdom begins with worshiping God. As you think about the words of the father to his son this morning, I want you to think about them in the light of the life of Jesus Christ. Because you and I have been given the privilege to see wisdom personified. Jesus Christ who revealed the wisdom of God in his life. And so when you hear that father's counsel to his son about what it looks like to live wisely, I want you to consider that counsel in the light of the example we have in Jesus Christ. I want you to see how he perfectly applied that counsel in the daily decisions of his life. And then go and do the same. Always keep that as a backdrop to what we look at in, in Proverbs together. If you think back to what the father has said to his son so far, the focus of his tension primarily has been on the instruction of what his son should pursue. The things that he should diligently seek after. Not in some half-hearted way. He describes it as if he is seeking for a hidden treasure. Searching for something that is of great value and importance. Remember, we talked about Fort Knox. And all the gold that's stored there. And the great measures that they've gone to to protect that. And how the father, in the same way, looks at his son and says, You need to protect that treasure the same way. You need to guard it in your heart where that treasure is being stored. Because the father knows that there is nothing more valuable in the life of his son 
than what his son believes to be true. The strength of his convictions. The sincerity of his faith. Now, as this conversation continues, it's as if the the father is turning his attention from what his son should pursue to now the people that his son should avoid. I hate to bring this up, but the reality is school's about to start. (laughs) I know, sorry. But in a matter of days, weeks, it'll be here. And and the reality is a lot of you are transitioning. Some of you are going into middle school, some of you are going into high school, but there's a lot of you who are in that season of life that I believe this son is in as his father speaks to him through these Proverbs. This last week we registered Graham for freshman at Friendship High School and I walked into this place and I thought, oh my gosh, this thing is big. It's just huge, it's intimidating. But it's a significant season in life. Graham and I have, have talked about that high school is a time when you prepare to navigate life on your own. And the friendships that you make during this time are significantly important. I believe this is the focus of the conversation that this father has with his son as he talks about those friendships. And so I want to encourage you to listen closely, especially if you are in this season of life when you are developing these friendships. See, this dad understands that his son's character is shaped by his friendships. That the decisions that he'll make in life are deeply influenced by the people that he spends time with. And so he looks at his son and he says very clearly, choose your friends wisely. And in order to guide him, his father paints a picture. Not literally, but figuratively, he gives him a portrait of a fool. And he tells him, you need to avoid these kind of people. As you choose friends and you see people like this, you need to go another way. Because their influence will lead you down the wrong path. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, is that portrait of a fool. So if you'll start with me in chapter 6, verse 1. Father turns to his son and he says these words. My son, if you have become a surety for your neighbor, have given pledge for a stranger, if you've been snared with the words of your mouth, have been caught with the words of your mouth, do this then, my son, and deliver yourself. Since you have come into the hand of a neighbor, go humble yourself and importune your neighbor. Do not give sleep to your eyes nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from a hunter's hand, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. See, one of the common characteristics about uh, young adults in their teenage years is they often leap before they look. (laughs) They engage their body before they engage their brain. I think this is particularly true of males. (laughs) I knew it was true of me. When I was a teenager, like the time I foolishly decided after a snowy day, it was covered on the ground, I know what I'll do. I'll stick my brother in the trunk of my car. I'll go down to the nearest parking lot and we'll do donuts. (laughs) That wasn't very smart. (laughs) Or when I was at Young Life Camp and we had this great idea on the night we were having spaghetti to suck that spaghetti up our nose and then out our mouth and then floss our nasal cavity. Don't any of you dare try that, okay? (laughs) 
I could give you a, a lot more incriminating evidence, but I assure you with this, the list goes on. It's just part of being a teenager. You engage your body before you engage your brain. And that's what happens. So the father, anticipating, I believe, his son's foolish decisions at times, uh, talks to him about what he needs to do when that happens. Now, as we walk through this example, I want you to understand that the father is creating a scenario to illustrate an important point. And I believe his example has less to do with a specific person and more to do with specific character. A character of a decision. Because the the father is describing a decision that is made in haste. A decision that someone makes when they have something to prove. An image to portray. And so he wants to talk to him about those decisions that put you in partnership with the wrong person. Decisions that allow you to develop friendships with a fool. And he wants to counsel him to go a different way. The father introduces it with this idea of giving surety for a stranger. That word stranger is actually the masculine version of the same word used to describe the adulteress in the previous chapter that we looked at last week. So really what the father is doing here is he's describing another invitation that will be afforded to his son to, to choose a different path, to go down a different road than the way of wisdom. It's an invitation to walk away from that path. And like the adulterers, it comes with a promise of great reward. It's a get-rich-quick scheme. The way to make it big in the world without a lot of work. But keep in mind, this goes beyond just some simple piece of advice about finances. This is a principle of making hasty decisions based purely on the promise of, of popularity, or success, or some great gain. That being said, the example of finances actually fits very well. Because I want you to think about this. Why do most people find themselves in a place where they get into debt? Why do they end up living beyond their means? Is it not very often because they have a certain image they want to portray? a certain lifestyle that they want to have, an image that is promoted by the clothes they wear, the car they drive, the crowd they run around with. This is an invitation for the good life, to to live the American dream, right? But let me tell you a little bit about the American dream. Did you know that the average American today carries over $15,000 in credit card debt alone? In addition to that, they carry another $150,000 in mortgage loan debt. And a lot of people have another $34,000 in student loan debt. In total, American consumers owe over $11.6 trillion in debt. And we're just following the example of our government, who exists right now in a deficit of $17 trillion. And so, it's not an an overstatement, suggests that living beyond your means is part of the American dream. But hear me on this. This goes beyond the simple advice about how to spend your money. (laughs) Because at its core, 
This is a character issue. It's a prideful pursuit of people and possessions that promise to bring satisfaction to your life instead of simply trusting in the Lord and walking faithfully with Him. See, it's the arrogance, as verse 2 says, of getting trapped by your words, of making decisions that, that jeopardize your spiritual integrity, jumping in with the wrong crowd, always wanting more than you already have, trying to keep up with the trends in order to have the right friends. But this prideful discontent will always lead you down a path of compromise. That's the invitation. Which is why the Father speaks with such urgency in verse 3. Look at that with me again. Do this then, my son. In, in other words, when you find yourself in this situation, deliver yourself. Since you've come into the hand of your neighbor, go humble yourself. And get out of that situation. Don't give sleep to your eyes. Don't let uh, slumber come to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand. Like a bird from a hand of a fowler. You see, when pride gets you in a mess, the Father says, do not hesitate to allow humility to get you out of that mess. Don't think for a second about popularity, about reputation. And don't worry about maintaining your position because there's way too much at stake when you begin to compromise your convictions in order to impress other people. I want you to think about the example of Christ. We said we needed to see that in, in the life of Christ as this is portrayed. And so the example I want you to think of is found in Philippians chapter 2. So keep your finger in Proverbs. Flip over to Philippians chapter 2. Galatians, uh, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2. I want you to follow along with me beginning in uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Paul speaking, in, and he's speaking specifically of, of Jesus when he writes, and he says in verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This passage tells us that, that Jesus made himself of no reputation. He fulfilled the prophetic words of Isaiah, who said that the Messiah would have no form of majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, Jesus didn't come to impress people with His deity. He came to change people with His love. Humbling Himself to the point of death. Even death as humiliating as being crucified on a cross. And so, in God's economy, being a servant is the ultimate goal. Laying down your life. He says a true friend is one who lays down his life for another. You might impress people with your worldly status, but you'll only honor God with your humble heart. 
You'll never be satisfied until you learn to trust in God to satisfy the deepest needs of your life. So consider your decisions very carefully. Don't be too quick to build compromising partnerships that promise the good life but will compromise your integrity. Remember the counsel of the Father. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He'll make your path straight. That's what this father wants his son to understand. Now look at verse 6 as the council continues. He says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which, having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer, gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When, you, uh, when will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come in like a vagabond, and your need like an armed man. See, the father seems to now swing the pendulum to the opposite extreme. Instead of the one who, who leaps before they look, who acts too quickly, now he examines the life of one who does things too slow. He describes a person who is a sluggard. It's a word used to, de- to describe someone who's lazy and irresponsible. These are people with the gift of procrastination, whose motto is, why put off today? What guy, why could I put off tomorrow? Or I'll get to it eventually. Just give me a little time. In order to make his point, he turns to the example of an ant. He points to the fact that an an ant doesn't have a chief or a ruler. He he doesn't have a a commander to, to dictate his every move. Because by nature, an ant is an industrious creature. Self motivated, self governed, self directed. The ant doesn't depend on someone else to, to do something for him. He gets the job done himself. No questions, no hesitation. The father also points to another quality of the ant. He explains that the, the activities of the ant are not without purpose, he's working for something, something yet future. He's not busy because of a crisis. He's actually busy in order to avoid one. He's waiting for the opportunity. He's not using circumstances to cause a decision for him. He's actually preparing for the future. So when that opportunity comes, the decision's already made. The preparations have already taken place. This is in stark contrast to the sluggard who doesn't move unless he has to. Probably has less trouble getting things done, more trouble just getting started on something. I'll get to it after I finish this. I'll do it as soon as I'm done here. The sluggard is a master of excuses. Now remember, the father is speaking to a son who's knocking on the doorstep of independence. He's transitioning from a a time in his life where his parents essentially did things for him, but now he has to learn to do things for himself can't depend on someone to, to just prod him along in every decision that he has to make. He's got to begin to make those decisions himself. He might be able to get away with it whenever he's under the protection of his home, but when he's out there on his own, everything changes. 
That's why verse 11 says that poverty will, will, will rob him like a thief. His lack of initiative will hold him hostage. By creating a crisis that he's not prepared for, it may not be able to overcome. I personally believe that even though these two examples sit on opposite extremes from one another, they actually share a common root cause. And I believe it's the issue of pride. In the same way that it's prideful to pursue people and possessions to satisfy your heart, it's just as prideful to pursue your own personal comfort and ignore the needs of others. Or to become a burden of others because of your own personal negligence and irresponsibility. Laziness at its core is a failure to love. It's a selfish satisfaction with the status quo. As I thought about that this week, I really believe that this may be the greatest danger for Christians in America. Because we live in such a comfortable society. We don't face the things that we talked about this morning that are happening in other parts of the world. And so our biggest danger is not that we're going to become a criminal. Our biggest danger is that we're going to settle for mediocrity and consider it good. The contentment of fulfilling religious obligations without making any meaningful impact in the world. It's my conviction that being a comfortable Christian is a false religion. Because Jesus made it very clear. Discipleship requires sacrifice. He said, if you wish to come after me, you've got to deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And like the ant, your motivation for that kind of life has to be something yet future. It can't be based on a reward that you expect to have right now. You've got to be preparing for something that is still ahead. You've got to believe that one day there's a harvest and that God needs laborers who live today with that day in mind. People who are diligent to invest their lives in things with eternal value. People who are faithful to carry out the Great Commission. That's the kind of person that this father wants his son to be. And when he develops friendships, he wants him to find friends who have the same goal in mind. Who are not just living for the moment, but living for something yet to come. Now look at verse 12. It says, A worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a false mouth, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers, who with perversity in his heart devises evil continually, who spreads strife. Therefore his calamity will come suddenly, instantly he will be broken, and there will be no healing. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among his brothers. The father moves from the, the, the sluggard to the scoundrel. That, that's the word really in the, in the original Hebrew that we translate a, a wicked or a, 
worthless person, scoundrel. The word literally means man of Biel, where Biel is a word in Scripture that's used to describe Satan. And so this is a, really a man literally after Satan's own heart. Someone who shares the desires of the devil. And so the father is warning his son to, to avoid anyone who might display the evidence of this kind of character. A person whose primary purpose is, is using deception subtly in order to create division. Actually sounds a lot like the devil, doesn't it? That's what he does best. That's why Jesus says that he is a liar and the father of all lies. And so the father is telling this son, this man really ultimately is a mouthpiece for the devil. And notice how subtle he is in verse 13 where he says, he winks with his eyes, he signals with his feet, he points with his finger. Maybe this is the guy who listens to the sermon and then looks down on his friends and rolls his eyes. The guy who hears something that maybe he doesn't agree with and so he <clears throat> kind of smirks. All of these actions assume that there's an audience. And so he's not just expressing his opinion. He's hoping to influence others to his point of view. This is a person who lives with a critical spirit. Someone who is an expert in identifying everyone else's faults while being blind to their own. See, the root cause of this character flaw is the same as the other two. It's pride. Because it's one thing to determine your own thoughts and opinions on something. It's quite another to arrogantly stand in judgment of those who do not hold your same point of view. People like this are a cancer to community. They are experts at identifying differences instead of working to protect unity. Now, they disguise themselves of those who, who stand for the truth. But all they're doing is hiding behind a heart of religious pride. Which is why the father tells the son that people like this are an abomination to the Lord. That's strong, strong words. The word abomination describes a passionate hatred. And that should tell us something about how strongly God feels about those who create disunity. Verse 16 says, There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to the Lord. This six, yes, seven terminology is really a literary device that's used in the Old Testament Scripture. And the reason it's used is because it's a way of emphasizing the last thing on the list. And so from God's perspective, the one who spreads strife among brothers, that's number seven, that's the last one. That person is worse than the prideful, lying, wicked man who spreads gossip and takes the life of the innocent. In other words, disunity within the body of Christ is an evil of the highest magnitude. That's his point. Because when you destroy the unity of God's people, you discredit the very image and reputation of God in the world. Remember, the church exists to display the manifold wisdom of God. 
that we proclaim the mystery of God's will, the, the summing up of all things in Christ, the, the oneness through our faith and trust in Him. And, and our relationship with one another should flow out of our relationship with God through faith in that promise. So that people actually see the very nature of God and how we love one another. And so if you run into someone who is an expert in identifying everyone else's faults, you need to run the other way. You need to find people who encourage you in your walk with Christ, who humbly hold you accountable. People who use their words to build up and not to tear down. Look for those who are quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, seeking to to build up the body of Christ, to fulfill the, the purpose of the church, to declare the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ in the unity that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. Those are the people you need to be friends with. The bottom line, the father telling his son, choose your friends wisely. Don't hang out with those who live beyond their means. Don't try to keep up with the Joneses. Find friends that you don't have to impress with the clothes you wear, with the car you drive, with the place you live, with the crowd you run with. Get connected with those who are committed to carrying out the Great Commission people who realize that there's a whole lot more to what life has to offer than life this side of heaven. People who invest their lives with thing, in things that have eternal value. People who are willing to sacrifice their own comfort in order to care for the needs of someone else. And be careful. In fact, avoid those who live with an attitude of judgment towards others, who live with that critical spirit, who are experts in telling you what everybody else is doing wrong. People who are quick to categorize without really ever getting to know those people that they put in that box. And perhaps as important as choosing the right friend is being the right friend. Actually demonstrating those attributes in your life that you want to see in the friendships that you have with other people. Maybe it needs to start with you. As you think about this, we've talked in recent weeks as we've considered this conversation between the father and his son about conversations that you might have together as family and friends. Uh, ideally, when you sit down together like a meal at dinner time. And so here's what I want you to do during that conversation this week. As you sit down with friends and family, I want you to do this. I want you to think about the life of Christ. If you have to, go back to the Gospels and read through and find an example. Here's what I want you to focus on. Who did he spend time with and why? Who were the people and what was the purpose? Think about his relationship with the disciples. What did that relationship look like? What purpose did they have in mind? What was the meaning of that friendship? Think about the woman at the well. What conversation took place there? What purpose did Jesus have in mind? Look at the relationships that Jesus had with people and the purpose behind them. Talk about that. And then consider how you can go and do the same. Having similar friendships with a similar purpose in mind. Follow that example of wisdom personified. 
See what it looks like when it's lived out in the life of Christ. And then go and do the same. And maybe in light of the things that are happening in the world today, we have a little bit more motivation to carry that through. Don't get too comfortable. Don't look the other way at persecution that exists with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And don't be too foolish to assume that someday that might not be us. And what are you going to do today to be ready for that? So that our unity in those, those times, is it going to matter? You better believe it is. It will be our lifeblood. We will only stand strong because we stand together. So let's do that now. Amen? Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for the practical wisdom of your word. The way in which you guide us in just the simple details of what it means to live life in a God-honoring way. And thank you for the reminder this morning of the value of friendships, of having the right friends. I especially pray for those who are in that season of life, their young adult life, their teenage years, as they are preparing to be independent, when they begin to make decisions on their own, that they do not um, look away at the importance of having the right friends, but instead will take this to heart that they will examine the friendships that they now have and those that they will soon make and ensure that they follow the pattern of what this father tells his son. Friends that are committed to following Christ. Friends that encourage one another and don't try to impress each other with how they dress and what car they drive. But they would invest their lives in things of eternal value, even at the risk of being mocked by others but they would be strong in their relationships with one another because of their conviction of being in a relationship with you. They would encourage each other towards that. As adults, help us to be that friend to our kids and to others. Help us to look first at our life and make sure that's who we're being as we determine what that looks like in the lives of those that we spend time with. May we be the friend that we want others to be to us. And may we be faithful to follow you, strong in our convictions, sincere in our faith, faithful in our commitment to trust in you. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, who one day, perhaps soon, will return to take us home. And until then, may we be found faithful. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Have a great day.